this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. If we are attacked by nuclear weapons, these are the warning sounds you must recognise. First, the attack warning. If an attack is expected, the sirens will sound a rising and falling note like this. Welcome to episode 11 of Cold War Conversations. That chilling piece of audio you've just heard was from a public information film that was to be broadcast to the British public should nuclear war have been imminent. Today we're covering the Royal Observer Corps, a British civil defence unit that would have been in the front line of monitoring a nuclear attack on the UK. We're talking to Alastair McCann, who has preserved an underground Royal Observer Corps monitoring post as a museum in Northern Ireland. We talk about the museum, the difficulties of the Northern Ireland Royal Observer Corps during the Troubles, and what the reality would have been for these men and women should the Cold War have turned hot. I hope you find our conversation as interesting as I did. We welcome Alastair McCann. Hi Alastair, how are you? I'm very well, Ian. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, no, thank you very much for coming on Cold War Conversations. I uh, I really appreciate it, and I'm quite intrigued to uh, hear about your project. So, could could you tell me uh, a little bit about yourself? Certainly, yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's quite a, an honour to be on the show because obviously, I have I have been a quite a long time listener, uh, and some of the guests you've had on before have had you know very varied academic backgrounds. I mean, I come into this. Uh, sort of, uh, I'm a builder by trade, um, family man, have no sort of academic background in history or anything like that there. Um, I just literally, I do this because of the love of it. Um, so, uh, Alistair, you're particularly interested in the the Cold War and the role of the Royal Observer Corps. Can you just get, give a little bit of background as to who the Royal Observer Corps were and what they did? Yes, uh, well, my my personal interest uh, stems from the fact that my grandfather uh, served in the Second World War in Edinburgh uh, with the, the the Observer Corps, as they were known then. Uh, he was at veterinary training college, uh, and he had heard about this organisation. One of his friends had joined joined this organisation in his spare time, and he said, "Literally, you're you're in the middle of a field looking for enemy aircraft," um, and up until that point. There had been no enemy aircraft, so uh, my grandfather signed up for this organization, had some rudimentary training, and found himself one night in a field and watched the very first Nazi bombing raid um, of the 1st of 4th. So he wrote about this in a a memoir, very rough draft of a memoir memoir that I found uh, maybe five or six years after he passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw this reference uh, to the Royal Observer Corps, uh, and that led me on to uh, discovering that this organization uh, had 1,500 uh, monitoring posts situated, situated all over the United Kingdom 
primarily primarily set up to uh, to spot enemy aircraft, uh, and then uh, later on in the Cold War to basically watch for incoming uh, ICBMs dropping and coming in and exploding in uh, in the United Kingdom, and to report the uh, the resulting explosions and the radioactive fallout. And as a result of your interest. I understand that you've decided to preserve one of these posts. Yes, that happened. It was a sort of a, a very fluid thing. I mean, I had took it upon myself to visit every single one of the remaining posts in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a builder, I do find myself in certain parts of the country. Uh, and with uh, it's quite good now with Google Maps. You can get little overlays that show you where certain points of interest are. And somebody had gone to the trouble of, of doing an ROC one. So uh, I was able to, on my travels, just have a little point of interest every now and again, would pop up my sat-nav. I would visit one of the posts, photograph it, see what condition it was in. Uh, and I just so happened to discover one about 10 minutes drive away from my house. It was in relatively good condition. And the farmer was quite accommodating and of a peppercorn rent of a pound a year. Uh, he, uh, he let me restore it. Wow, that's a good deal you got there, Alastair. I'm impressed. Yes, and being a typical farmer, uh, I'm paid up for 20, 20 years in advance because <laughs> I, only had, I only had a £20 note and he, he said he didn't have any change. <laughs> so yeah. I'm there for 20 years if I like it or not. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. And um, sorry, just going back to the Royal Observer Corps, I mean, you mentioned your grandfather sort of heard about the organisation and and was recruited. I mean, how did recruitment work? Was it generally word of mouth or were they advertising or, or, or what were they doing to get people on board? Essentially, it was just people in the local pub, uh, you know, with just the local constabulary would sort of go around people that they knew were trustworthy. They knew, you know, wouldn't call, raise an alarm just for a joke. Uh, and Around a lot of universities and colleges, that's where they got a lot of the a lot of the recruits from at the time. Just young men right. who a lot of spare time, uh, and my grandfather uh, being too young to join the army or the air force or the navy, uh, just joining university uh, was just a perfect age with a lot of spare time that he could he could do this job. Okay, so the the Royal Observer Corps monitoring posts. If, if if we can just sort of describe what they're like, because they're not a big installation, are they? As bombs started to get bigger, they realised that you know we're going to have to do something to not you know not to keep our observers safe, but more to keep the information flow going. Um, so we're going to have to do something: get these guys underground, get them safe. Uh, get as much information flowing for as long as humanly possible before you know the eventual outcome happens with fallout. So they, from about 1958, they started to excavate uh, these monitoring posts, which are about, let me see, uh, above ground. We're talking 15 feet, 15 to 20 feet by about 10 feet. Um, in size. Um, it's about 15 feet below ground at its lowest point. Uh, entry is via a ladder uh, and below ground you have two rooms. One would be a sort of toilet storage room which would be about three feet by three feet uh, and then you have a, a, a sleeping and working room uh, which would be about 10 feet by eight feet. 
Right. So very, 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 very basic. And yeah. only enough, only enough room down there for three people. Right. Okay. And so the the access is via a, a hatch in the ground and down a ladder. And then when, when you first climbed into one of these bunkers, what 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 was your first, you know, what was your first impression like? Uh, there's so many photographs of posts online. And the one thing people will say about them is they all look the same. Mm. The, weird, the weird thing about every post I've ever been in, there's always differences, always differences, the little subtle differences that observers have done themselves to try to make it slightly more homely. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, there's, there's posts I've been in. I mean, other than the posts in, in Northern Ireland, I've been in posts in England, Wales, and Scotland as well. And mm-hmm. I've been in posts where one of the observers was an artist. So he's actually painted windows on the walls with, lands- with landscapes and things like that there. Wow. Just, to, just to try to make it a little bit more homely. They've put curtains up in front of the bunk bed so that, you know, observers get a little bit of privacy. Um, they've, they've tried to make ventilation slightly better by putting in, you know, uh, electric fans and things like that there. Uh, some, I mean, I know a, a friend of mine, uh, David Shaw, he was uh, in Carlisle uh, group and uh, they had uh, access to 240 volt electricity and they actually had a microwave and a TV in their post. Uh, so it's just little things like that there. It's every time I go into a post, the first thing you get is the smell. All the posts smell the same, the slightly damp, musty smell of unused you know that when i first time i was in one was about 2007 so the the post had been closed you know from 1991 so on some occasions i was the first person into them since that period and the farmer was giving me the keys Mm. and, and let me unlock these padlocks and get down into them and um Slightly damp. Some posts do did suffer from damp, so you would sometimes you did get a little bit of standing water. But on some occasions, I would be going into a time capsule. You know, literally the post was exactly how it was left in nineteen ninety one. Wow. Um, still bits of paperwork on the desk. Uh, a lot of the, the original BT equipment. Um, BT simply left it in the posts. They they didn't see any point. Uh, BT would install the early warning equipment and some of the communications yeah. equipment. They just didn't bother collecting it. Um, in some posts in Northern Ireland, there were the, you know up on the side of mountains and things like that. There, you'd have to walk for about half a mile across a couple of fields to get to it. BT just, you know, what are we going to do with this stuff? We'll just leave it here because there, there really isn't any other use for it. So I was going into this post, and all this equipment was still on the wall. Now none of it worked, but uh, you know it was still there and it was still all connected up to a, to a telephone pole. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. And the, the bunker that you, you know, run as your museum, what, what condition was that in when you first went in? Dirty, but only through people visiting it. Um, at the time, uh, there was no sort of direct access to it. So people would have to put on a pair of boots and walk across a field to it. Um, right. So it was a bit, a bit muddy and dirty on the floor, but, but nothing that... <sighs> you know, three or four weekends worth of work didn't sort out. Um, what I did was I sort of, uh, the hatch was very, very rusty. So I sort of had to attack that with an angle grinder and get it cleaned up. And the, the, the padlock hasps on it were, were sort of rusted in position. So a blowtorch had to be taken to those to free them up. Uh, I, I managed to get the, one of the original keys. Um, for security reasons, when you do close the hatch, you don't lock it with padlocks. You, you sort of lock the padlocks open, if you understand. 
and uh, you close the hatch and then there's a, like an internal locking mechanism. That was just completely missing. Somebody had broken that off. Right. So um, I got a friend of mine to sort of reconstruct, manufacture this brand new locking mechanism, uh, which I refitted. So that made the post secure. I didn't want to start doing anything until I knew the post was secure. Uh, and once that was in place, then I could start getting all the electrics rewired down below ground and then start going out and getting all the equipment. Yeah. Uh, and that, that probably took the most, most work. That was the fun part. I loved doing that. I loved doing the work to it. And I would, I would find myself there to maybe 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, painting downstairs below ground. And very odd occasions, I would stay the night uh, just, to, just to let paint dry and then finish it up in the morning. I bet you were uh, high, high on those fumes by the time you came out the next morning, no? <laughs> and when I did the latter, it was, yeah. I used a two-coat two coat epoxy on that, and that, that was interesting, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was great fun. It was, that, was the, that was a really good time because I was doing that all myself. Um, at that stage, I sort of had yet to meet um, any of the former observers. Uh, I spoke to a few of them on the phone, but... Nobody had shown any interest to actually come out and, you know, take part and, you know, do it with me. Because I think they were a bit apprehensive about this guy that really had no association other than his grandfather in the Second World War. He was, I didn't serve in the Royal Observer Corps myself. So they maybe thought, you know, this is just some guy who's not really going to, he's not going to take it anywhere. He's going to do a bit of work, find out it's too difficult and then give up on it. Yeah. but, you know, the hard work was really only beginning there. I, I didn't realize how difficult it would be then to sort of obtain all the equipment. That was where the, the you know, that's where it got difficult. Right. So it, it had been gutted to some degree as far as the equipment um, was concerned when you, when you got it? So in, uh, in July 1991, the, uh, the Royal Observer Corps would basically notified that they were, they were going to be stood down. Uh, and in September... 1991 that came to pass and uh, every uh, monitoring post and all the headquarters all over the United Kingdom, they all stood down, they were all closed. So the, the Northern Ireland office were tasked by the Home Office uh, to, to start gutting out all the Northern Ireland posts. So just a team would go round every post in a van and just clear the post of all the sort of mo- nuclear monitoring equipment. Um, some of the communication equipment, they would remove things like radios, uh, but anything that belonged to BT, that, that stayed in situ and was up to BT. If they wanted to remove it, they could. Mm. Um, and, I mean, they were taking everything. They were taking bunk beds out. They were taking tables, chairs, uh, all the food supplies, everything. Uh, and depending where that post was situated, they would remove less. Uh, it's, you know, things like bunk beds are very, very difficult to sort of get up out of the shaft. They're sort of they're built yeah. almost ex- exactly the width of the shaft. The shaft's uh, two feet by two feet, so there's uh, there's not much room to get a bunk bed up out of there. Um, so th- you would find that they would leave those if the post was at the top of a hill somewhere uh, in the middle of a field. They would the bunk beds would stay, mm-hmm. but everything else was taken. So uh, when I was going around these posts. You would see to varying degrees, uh, you know, different bits of equipment they would leave. Uh, some training equipment they would leave behind. Uh, maybe something had fallen, but fallen behind a cupboard. Uh, you would pull the cupboard out and you'd find some piece of equipment to drop down behind it. Uh, so I got little tiny bits. Um, and with farmer's permission, I would either buy it off them or they would just give it to me. So I was getting little bits and pieces. Uh, paperwork especially, that was a big deal for me, getting original paperwork because uh, – Generally, when stuff comes up for sale on eBay, uh, it's always England or uh, or Wales or Scotland. It's Northern Ireland was very, very specific. 
so getting stuff which which actually had thirty one group on it, which was which was Northern Ireland's group, uh, was very very special to me. Uh, and then then the equipment uh, that was sort of contacting museums. Uh, eBay proved very, very, very special there for getting bits of equipment. I'm interested to know, I mean, the farmers or the, the people whose land the posts were on, was this piece of land compulsorily purchased by the government or how how was that agreement with the landowner done with the government? Do you know? Uh, yes, well, I mean, during the Second World War, obviously, they were just set up in a, in a farmer's field somewhere. Generally, it was the farmer that was actually, he was one of the members of the post with them. Uh, and uh, as, the, as the Second World War progressed, uh, they started to put up more permanent structures. And then the landowner started to get paid a rent after that. Uh, then as the Cold War began, um, they, they started to do the underground posts. They tended to cite them where the Second World War uh, above ground post was to try to get round uh, going to the farmer and sort of having to buy the land off them. So this sort of rent would continue, and it was usually a 10-year lease, and um, he got about £100 a year. Uh, and then when it became to doing the underground posts uh, in sort of Northern Ireland, we didn't have we didn't have the Observer Corps here during the Second World War. Uh, recruitment only began in Northern Ireland in 1954. Right. Uh, so a compulsory purchase order had to be made then, and... Uh, in a lot of the sites, um, the farmers, you know, sort of said, listen, we'll take you to court and different things. It got quite nasty in certain situations. So, again, they were started to go and try to do a rental agreement with some farmers. And in some cases, you know, where, where rent and sort of thing, England would be £100 rent for a post over here would be about £200. So, the farmers, you know, did see sort of this little, you know, they stuck their arm in a wee bit and got a little bit of extra money out of the government for doing it. Yeah. I mean, is, is that because... I don't know. I was going to ask you this about recruitment in Northern Ireland because I was interested to know whether there was a sectarian angle there in terms of who was accepted into recruitment of the Royal Observer Corps. They tended, uh, in 1954, when recruitment began, uh, they, a lot of the first members that joined were XRAF. Um, from the Second World War, just because they had the aircraft background. Yeah. Uh, as that progressed, uh, they started to recruit from from towns and villages. Uh, obviously, the posts are going to be situated a couple of miles, maybe a mile outside a town or village. So they wanted to have people that were close to the posts that could get there quickly. Um, so the, the the sectarian divide, which which really was only starting to begin in the fifties over here. Uh, obviously, there was there was small. Uh, sporadic violence here in the 50s um, but nothing major had started to begun until the end of the 60s start of the 70s but no they recruited from both sides of the community then um, I, I'm very lucky that I, I, I do have a lot of uh, ex-observers as friends now yeah. um, and I, I can phone them up for asking bits of advice and no they had they had no policy of recruiting from one side of the community and uh, but uh, it, it was probably a lot easier before the Troubles, I would imagine that there was a lot more, uh, a wider spectrum from both communities. I'd say before the Troubles started, I, I would say that after the Troubles began, that um, the nationalist community, I would say quite a few uh, members left, or uh, just in case they were seen to be, you know, colluding with the enemy, sort of, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah, because I was, and, and like, I, I guess the other thing is if you've got a, you know, you're a farmer who is a uh, nationalist, and you've got a Royal Observer Corps post on your land. 
Yes, well, I, I mean... Th- th- Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. It wasn't until the early 70s where a security mandate had to be written out that uh, observers couldn't wear uniforms. That was the first thing. Uh, if you're ter- if reporting for duty, don't wear uniforms. Just come in your own clothes. Right. Uh, then it was the posts are going to have to close uh, for a certain amount of time because of the deteriorating security situation. Uh, that amount of time went from being a year to being two years to being three years. And eventually it was actually 10 years the posts had to close for um, because of the security situations. So from 1971 until 1981, all the posts were closed. Uh, uh, You would check on them, you would go and check on them, and you would have to notify the police that you were going up to check on the post. And the police would go out with you and you would look, make sure the post was still in one piece, and then that was it, you would leave. You 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 would do all your training in local territorial army camp or in the local police station. Uh, but the, the posts were completely closed. There was no nuclear monitoring. Other than the group headquarters, there was no community-based nuclear monitoring taking place at all in Northern Ireland for a period of 10 years, wow. uh, you know, which was very detrimental. You know, that's, that's a very large portion of the United Kingdom just completely wiped out. Uh, and a couple of posts were attacked in that situation. Um, we had a couple of posts were firebombed. Um, in fact, where I grew up, um, I live in a town called Lurgan, Mm. Um, which is in Armagh, which during the Troubles was was a very, very, very focal point of, of the Troubles. Any of your listeners who are, who are ex-Army will, will know Armagh very, very well and probably know uh, Lurgan very, very well. Uh, and uh, the post that was actually ba- behind my house, Lurgan, uh, ROC post, was, was situated in the field in the house I grew up. Um, and in uh, December 1980, um, it was firebombed. The IRA broke into it, uh, stole all the monitoring equipment out of it, and firebombed it. And uh, because obviously the posts were were still closed at that point, uh, it wasn't until three months later that a, a BT engineer just did carrying out a routine inspection just to find this post completely destroyed. Right. So the army army were called. The army came out and started doing a sweep around the countryside and uh, uncovered an arms cache. And uh, inside this arms cache uh, was some of the warning equipment. Um, and I actually have the, uh, the army evidence file uh, that actually has, shows, shows a photograph of all this equipment laid out with a route surrounded by hand grenades and shotguns and things like that there. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's also superb, absolutely superb document. I got it from Q. Yeah, and uh, it uh, it goes into some detail, like the, an army helicopter uh, had spotted the air raid siren on the top of a local block of flats, but they advised not going to get it back because of the, the local, you know, civil population would, yeah. would probably riot, riot. So it, you know, just some of these fantastic documents, just you know, so local to me. Um, yeah. 
that's just you know a, a fantastic little just little uh, just you know little shot of history there. Yeah, no, no, that 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 is fascinating. That's really interesting. And the equipment that was in the bunker, um, wh- what was in there? I mean, I don't want to go into a huge amount of detail, but obviously there was something to monitor the the blast wave, and there was something on the surfaces, I believe, to pinpoint where the nuclear detonation had gone off. Correct. Yes, I mean the the the, the nuclear detonation um, when the explosion went off. Um, There'd be a pressure wave, uh, and that would travel along the ground. And depending how far, obviously, and how close you were to the blast, you would have a, a larger pressure wave. So up below ground, you had a piece of equipment called the bomb power indicator, and there was a set of baffle plates. The pressure wave would go down a pipe, down into the bomb power indicator, and a needle on the bomb power indicator would, in, in PSI, would show you the, the, the PSI of the explosion. And by triangulating then your pressure reading with pressure readings from other posts, you could effectively work out what size the explosion was and how far away it was. Uh, And then a minute after the explosion went off, one of the observers then had to go above ground, which is just ridiculous when you think about it. Yes, did they draw straws for that or how was that person nominated? (laughs) I would imagine it was probably the person that was the sort of the least the least stars or, or stripes on their uniform. There was a rank structure. There was a chief observer who was sort of the, in charge of the post. Uh, there was a, a leading observer who was the second in command. He was the training instructor, and then you had a normal observer, either a male observer or a female observer. And uh, I would I would imagine it was uh, it was probably one of those <laughs> the lowly guys and girls that had to go up above ground and do it. It's uh, horrendous when you think about it. You know, it's the fact that the mushroom cloud would would still be forming you know a minute after the explosion so uh you know obviously that the uh the fallout wouldn't have reached you by this point but still been quite scary situation to go above ground um and to see this mushroom cloud forming you know maybe 10 15 miles away from you uh and there was a, a device on the surface which was a pinhole camera uh, very, very, very simple. No electronics involved whatsoever, and it was called a ground zero indicator, or a GZI for short. And uh, you just took the lid off it, and inside was uh, just exposed photographic paper, and that was uh, inside a cassette, a graticule cassette, and that was uh, north, south, east, and west. So by taking that down below ground, you changed them for new ones, uh, put the lid back on, climbed back down the ladder, and again, by uh, triangulating what your uh, the the cassettes, what the what the the grid coordinates and that gave you, and then by using the the blast pressure, you could work out the size of the explosion, distance of the explosion, what height the explosion was at, uh, and then obviously then how much fallout that uh, that bomb would be giving off. Right. Okay, and you mentioned that that device didn't have any electronics. Um, I'm I'm not a great scientist, but I do know that a nuclear weapon. Uh, releases an electromagnetic pulse which fries yes. electrical circuits. So how how was the equipment inside the bunker protected against that? It was and it wasn't. Uh, obviously, when the posts were built in 1958, uh, EMP was, a, was quite a new thing. Uh, and the, the posts were, were poured sectional concrete uh, with, with steel reinforcement. Uh, the equipment that was powered below ground was all powered by 12 volt. So your lighting system, lighting circuit was all 12 volt. Uh, your battery system was all charged via 12 volt petrol electric generator. 
uh, you the only thing which was which was, which was essentially uh, over the mains was your telephone system, uh, which would have been fifty volt powered from the local telephone exchange. Uh, the telephone system, I think, would have been the first thing that would have failed. Uh, you, your everything was via overhead telephone cables. So, you know, just little silly things. I mean, by, by how good the posts were, I mean, they had a protective factor from fallout of 50,000 to one. So fallout would have to be 50,000 times greater than background radiation uh, to actually penetrate into the post. But still, AMP would have essentially would have just wiped out the telephone network straight away. So there's your communication system gone. Um so that is pretty pointless then, doesn't it? Because surely the whole point of this is to be able to communicate back to their headquarters. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's, it's probably the most fallible aspect of all the post system. It's, it's, it's ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, I, there is a, I have spoken to a couple of observers who did raise this um, during, they had uh, sort of large training camp weekends. They would go to all go off to these RAF uh, bases. It was basically a jolly. They would do a lot of training and a lot of drinking. Uh, so <laughs> that's what I've, been, what I've been told. And uh, they essentially were, somebody raised the question, listen, what about this telephone system? I mean, it, it's all overhead cables. I mean, obviously these telephone poles are going to burst into flames. The whole telephone system is going to be fried straight away. And somebody said, oh, well, BT will come out. If east and west communication breaks down and we have troop movements, they'll drop the cables onto the ground. So they'll put them and they'll put them into a shallow trench and they'll bury them. And somebody's saying, well, hold on a second. There's 1,560 posts exactly all over the United Kingdom. Are you trying to tell me that BT will be able to get enough people to come out and do every single one of those posts all over the country in the, in the space of a week? You know, and anybody nowadays has ever tried to get broadband fitted, you know, will know that yeah. there's not a chance. There's not a chance that would have happened. So, uh, you know, one in every four posts. Posts were uh, sort of organised into clusters of sort of two to four posts, and one post in every four was designated a master post, and that post had a radio. Uh, so there was a fallback to have a radio. Uh, now, whether that would have worked after the explosion or not. We will never know. Uh, they did radio tests on the post during training exercises, and very, very rarely would the radios actually be able to reach back to group control. Right. Uh, so it's one of the things we wouldn't, we will never know if the system would have worked. I think the actual the equipment would have worked. I think they would have been able to get the readings. They would have been able to take the measurements. That all would have worked. Um, the, communi- the communication system. I think that that was the most fallible part of the whole thing. Right. And presumably they were going to have a network of runners or something going from each of these non-radio connected posts to the master post. Or mind you, they were quite a distance away, weren't they? Because weren't they about seven or eight miles from each post or something like that? Yeah, generally generally it was about eight to ten together and... What they try to do was the the post crew uh, would have been people from the town closest to it. They try to recruit from the town closest to it. So generally, uh, as commu- as if tensions have become hot, so the Cuban Missile Crisis, for instance, um, you have a period where it's starting to build. People are starting to get worried about it. It's on the news more and more. Um, there would have been a system called transition to war. So the group control would have been told that the United Kingdom Warning and Monitoring Organization, which was the group in charge of the Royal Observer Corps uh, under, the, under the umbrella of the Home Office, they would have been told to stand to. And group control would have then let all the chief observers know 
that uh, you're on transition to war. So the chief observers would then phone their leading observer and they would then in turn phone all of the other post crew. Uh, the ch- leading observer would go to the post to meet the rest of the post crew to give them their rota. And then they would put, be put on 12-hour rotating shifts. Uh, and then the chief observer, he would go to group control and collect the ration packs and their basically their war equipment, uh, all their, their battery supplies, things like that there, go back to the post, and then they would continue in a rota shift pattern until the four-minute warning happened. So the crew that was in the post when the four-minute warning was sounded, so there was a piece of equipment on the wall uh, installed by BT, uh, called a, a carrier control receiver. Um, and it was just a speaker on the wall, and that would get the attack warning red message. And the attack warning red message was basically broadcast from RAF filing deals. And that was the early warning radar station so, in the so Yorkshire Mirrors. an audio message. So some, it's somebody saying attack warning red, and it comes through the speaker. <laughs> yes. Now, what you would have would be RAF filing deals would detect the incoming missile, uh, NORAD would more than likely have detected that as well. Uh, RF filing deals would then turn on, turn off the speaking clock. So if you had phoned the speaking clock at that point, you would more than likely have heard that message as well. Uh, it would then turn on two sets of keys. It would then broadcast a message. Every major telephone uh, in a police station, they had a piece of equipment called, called a carrier control point, um, and that was two red telephones, and they would ring. Um, so this policeman who was leaning back with his feet in his desk with a cup of coffee would be startled by these two red telephones suddenly flashing. Uh, he would pick up these two red telephones. He would hear the message attack warning red repeated three times. He would turn a key. He would turn on the local air raid siren, first of all. He would then press another button, and he would then be connected to all these little warning speakers, which would be situated in the monitoring posts, maybe the local bank, maybe the local village pub, the local vet places like that, they in turn would have their own air raid sirens and they would go out and start sounding them. Uh, and that would be how the, then the, the warning message would be broadcast to both them and the general public. It just sounds um, unbelievable. You know, four minutes, if you think about it, when RAF filing deals, that was four minutes. They knew that bomb was coming and they had four minutes. By the time that warning message had been broadcast to the general public, we probably only had about two minutes. Yeah, if that, if that, yeah, that that's really that, that's really uh, chilling. I think is the uh, the the phrase I was looking for. Well, it's just it's things like when you when you think about watching, uh, you know, everybody will have know, uh, or any of your your UK listeners anyway will, will know about Protect and Survive, the book Protect and Survive, and the the sort of the, the government films that came after that, and people are thinking, God, this is, just looks so basic, and it was really basic you know we had no provision in the united kingdom for uh public shelters there was no public shelters at all while america was building public shelters under most civic buildings in the united states we had nothing it was, it was all government and local government based level well what's the the longest time you've spent in the bunker uh i did a, a weekend long uh, event uh, for the 20th anniversary of the stand down of the Royal Observer Corps. Uh, I decided to stay for the weekend along with a, a group of other people um, yeah. who had also restored posts. Um, and uh, we're very, very lucky that one of the guys in Scotland who's restored his post is a bit of an electronics genius. And uh, he, uh, he worked out that with a little bit of basic uh, 
rewiring of the post communication system. Uh, he could actually get it working again. Uh, so uh, all involved is sort of finding where BT had sort of cut the original telephone wires, doing a bit of re-splicing, uh, connecting it to a 3G modem, and uh, you could actually turn the original communication system into a Skype uh, terminal. Um, so by connecting all our modems to the same uh, to the same sort of uh, server, um, we were all able to talk to each other. Uh, so uh, in a part, we have sort of reconnected the uh, a very small part of the Royal Observer Core network, which is wow. which is that's, which is quite fantastic. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I really like that. I mean, you, you mentioned that you you weren't in the Royal Observer Corps, but I'm I'm just interested to know your thoughts on what you do if you had been in the Royal Observer Corps for real and the alarm had sounded. I was born in 1979, so I was a child, obviously, of the 80s. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until, I mean, I vividly remember the Berlin Wall coming down and watching it on television with my parents. I vividly remember that. Um, it's not until uh, maybe I, I started, when I started doing the research into the posts, I mean, I wanted to get it right. I didn't want to do something that was, it, that it was a museum, but it was very, very basic. I wanted to do something that was proper, that was, a, was as authentic as humanly possible. Mm. And when I started doing the research about it, the main concern of all of the ROC hierarchy was how many observers would actually turn up. When they got that phone call to say, a bomb is on its way, or you know, Russia has started massing troops on the border, mm would they have been able to pick up their bag from the front door, say goodbye to their wife and their kids, walk out that front door and drive to the post and not for one second think that's probably the last time I'll ever see them. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's know, exactly the image that I conjure up and and sort of, I don't know, and particularly when you talk about, well, it's pretty pointless anyway because the phone system won't work after the bomb drops. It's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the fact that you had no communication. We, we're, we're very lucky, very, very lucky. I, so I say to my kids all the time how lucky you are that you can talk to, you can play on your Xbox or PlayStation with one of your friends in Australia and have direct communication with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whenever you want. Mm. Back when I was your age, we had none of that. We had no mobile telephones. If you wanted to phone somebody, you had to pick up a rotary dial telephone and, you know, you know, showing my age now and phone somebody with a rotary dial telephone. Things yeah. like that, they're just, yeah. you know, are so alien to them. Yeah. But, you know, even more so back in the 80s, just how basic everything was that you got in your car and you drove away until you saw your family again, unless you went to a phone box, you know, that was the only time you were going to yeah. speak to them, you know. Um, and it, this, you know, this story might sound made up, but I, I, honestly, it is compl- it is one hundred percent true. Last week, uh, I had a phone call from uh, an ex observer um, from the post that is eight miles. It was in the group, the cluster of posts that uh, my post poured down was connected to, mm-hmm. and he was the ex chief observer in that post, and he he saved everything, all the paperwork, every single bit of paperwork, he saved it, and he, he got me. He saw a, I had done a, an Irish language documentary. Um, about underground spaces in Ireland. And uh, he, had, he, had, he had watched the documentary and seen the post 
and he had, he had got my phone number and he phoned me and said, listen, I have all this paperwork in my roof space. I would love for you to have it. And I said, listen, that'll be absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for thinking about me. I drove out to his house and he just mountains and mountains and mountains of paperwork. Wow. And I had said to him about the recruitment, you know, how, obviously you, you had known what you were, this role you were training for. You were going out to the post, you know, every couple of, every month or so you were going out to the post and doing these training exercises. Mm. Obviously you were playing war games, but if it had happened for real, you know, how would you have felt? Because obviously, you know, the age of the man he was, and I know the age of his children, how you, his children would have been only maybe four or five years old at this point. Mm. And he said to me, Alistair, my very, very first day on the job, uh, the chief observer of the post collected me from my house. As I opened the door, my daughter, four-year-old daughter, ran out and said, bye-bye, daddy. And he gave her a big, massive hug, and he says, I love you. And um, listen, I'll, I'll see you soon. And he gave her a big, massive hug, and they all said goodbye. And he got into the car, and they drove away. And the chief observer turned to him about half a mile down the road. It was completely quiet in the car. And he turned around to him, and he said, uh, why, did you, why did you do that? Do you always do that with your kids? You know, you are going to see them again. And, and Harry turned around, and he said, the job we're doing if I don't think when I leave this house that I'm never going to see my family again, if I don't prepare myself for that, I will never, ever, when the time comes, leave that front door if I don't prepare myself for the fact that I'll never see my family again. Mm. And the chief observer that was in the car with him, then just the car went completely quiet then for the rest of the journey. One week later, and this is completely true, the chief observer resigned his post. Wow. Chief Observer resigned his post. And that was the first time that this is only a week this is only a week ago I was told that story. Yeah. And that, that completely hit home to me. You know, I've obviously I've I've got three three kids, three boys, and uh I don't I don't I think the training, yes, I could do it, but when the actual time came, I would love to be able to say to you right now that yes, I would do my duty. I would pick up my bag from the front door and I would head straight to the post. But when that time came, could you, could you, anybody listening to this now, could you honestly say that you would be able to just leave your front door, turn around, see your family, and that could be the last time you'd ever see them? Yeah, no, no. Very, I don't, I don't think any, any, anybody could. And it's, you've given a fantastic insight there into the, the dilemma that all of these people would have had if they'd got the call. Yeah, this was a voluntary organization. You know, you might have people thinking, oh, well, they were being paid. They were not being paid. This was no different to you joining. I know it, it sounds so basic, and I'll probably have an ex-observer say, well, that's not what it was like. But it's no different to you being the local scout leader. You know what I mean? It's a voluntary yeah. thing that you're going to do on a voluntary basis just to protect your local community. Yeah. And it, it's... You know, okay, if you were getting money for it, maybe it may, I, don't know, I don't think it would make it any easier. But maybe if you were getting a little bit of income out of it, but you, you weren't getting anything. You were maybe getting a, a petrol bonus, or you know, yeah. a couple a couple of pounds for a tank of petrol, but you weren't getting a you weren't getting paid for it. And a uniform you can't wear if you live in Northern Ireland as well. Yes, a lovely RAF uh, seventy nine pattern uniform that. Uh, up until if you joined in 1970, you weren't able to wear yeah. it for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> I probably wouldn't fit into it after 10 years, to be honest. But uh. yeah, well, some observers are, I, I know actually kept their uniform. They were they were so scared of throwing it away. Um, 
not uh, not so much in case of a recall to duty, yeah. but in case like the local bin man, you know, found it in the bin. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I had one observer uh, come to one of my very first open days, and he said about 10, 15 years after standing, he cut his uniform up into little pieces. Yeah. And every every week or so, he would put an extra bit of the uniform into a bin bag. And so it wasn't all in one bin bag. It was it was spaced out. And you're thinking, you know, I grew up during the Troubles, you know, but, you know, even that, you know, just yeah. think, good grief, you know, that it was it was that scary, you know, that they have to do little things like that there. That That's a, that's a, fascinating inside because it's a whole different angle on the whole royal observer corps story and that that's one of the reasons why i wanted to talk to you because it's particularly interesting in northern ireland because the cold war or you know the some of the hottest bits of the cold war occurred right in the middle of the troubles yes so um so you had a you had a, a credible threat which could which could happen at any moment you also had this specter of threat which was hanging over you from the soviet union as well yeah. uh you know so yeah you, you basically you'd, you'd both sides you know really you had your own community in a, in a certain sense gunning for you and then you also have the specter of threat then coming from the soviet union as well yeah it's uh, certainly um sobering sobering stuff what i did want to do is ask you a couple of other questions away from the the Royal Observer Corps. And it was, it was more about, you know, mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot of, um, you know, Cold War and Cold War era films out there. What, what would be your favorite film of the Cold War, would you say? That's probably the easiest answer. And I hope nobody's ever said it before because this is, this is my favorite film. Probably, it's probably my favorite Cold definitely my favorite Cold War film of all time. If not, probably my, one of my top 10 films of all time. And I'll be the fourth protocol okay. with uh, awesome. Michael Caine. Yes, Michael Caine and Pierce Brosnan. Now, it's, it's slightly different from the book, but yeah. uh, I think the film is superb and it has everything in it. No, nobody's chosen that one so far. So well, well done with that. Um, and if you were going to make a film, about the Cold War, what, what piece of music would, do you think would make a good soundtrack? Silent Rummings by Mike and the Mechanics, which is just an eerie song. When you listen to the words of it, it's about a sort of a, a war which has obviously taken place. And uh, I think it's, it's very, very reminiscent if you've watched the film, uh, prote- uh, what's the, protect- the film based on Protect and Survive? Uh, Threads. Yeah, threads. It's sort of based around that. It goes very, very well with threads. Um, if you watch threads and then uh, and then listen to silent rumblings, it's just yeah. basically a sort of a, a letter left. Um, almost probably you could probably say that a, an observer has left this letter for his wife and family that to say, you know, just be very, very careful with what happens after the war. And if you listen to the words of the song, um, they're quite they're quite apt. Right. Okay. That's good. That's good. I'll get a link up to that on the uh, show notes. Um, if you could invite three personalities from the Cold War period to have a few drinks with, who would they be? John F. Kennedy and Khrushchev, just to have both of them sitting and interviewed. Because I honestly think that if John F. Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, I honestly think that uh, somebody would have got to sit down with both of them in the same room discussing the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
Um, I think that's one of the most fascinating subjects ever because it's obviously other than Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's it's the closest that the the war the world has ever come to all out nuclear war. Well, wait for my episode on the Able Archer exercise. Ah, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, that that yes, that'll be fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> It was absolutely critical period of the Cold War and two fascinating characters. What what questions would you be asking them? What made them both step back? Because up until the point that they did step back, it was it was almost a certainty. We had all out panic. Uh, you know, any of the documentaries or books that I've watched and read, you know, it was a certainty. People pretty much thought that it was a certainty that it was going to happen. And what made them both just say, listen, you know, we need to step back from this here. Uh, obviously, we had the missiles in Turkey. We had the missiles in Cuba. What made both just say, listen, you know, we need to sit back here and talk about this? Because, you know, John F. Kennedy was a very, very strong person. Khrushchev, you know, was a very, very strong-minded person. Mm. Uh, it took a lot of courage for both of them to do that. A lot of courage for both of them to do that. Yeah. Okay. No, very good. Very good choice there. Um are there any books or uh, websites you'd recommend for people who would be interested in the Royal Observer Corps during the Cold War? Obviously, I'm going to put a link to the, your uh, bunker site. Don't worry. Not a problem. Uh, there's two books which I would say would be the if, – if you're doing any research at all to, involved with the Royal Observer Corps, one would be Attack Warning Red. Uh, now it's you can't buy it brand new from Amazon or anything like that there, but you can pick up copies from bookshops and eBay. Uh, Attack Warning Red is is probably the most essential um, piece of literature uh, about the Royal Observer Corps, and it pretty much covers their Second World War period and the Cold War period, and it's very very handy because it also has all the national grid coordinates, um, GRF coordinates for all of the posts. Right. Uh, so if you have, if you want to visit one, you can more than likely find it listed in the book, and you can you can go and visit it. Uh, the second book would be it's called the Royal Observer Corps Underground Monitoring Posts, uh, and that came out in two thousand and eleven, um, and that basically covers all of their Cold War period, and it goes into detail and such the building of the posts, uh, all of their equipment, how it worked, uh, the observers' role. Um, and then also goes on after that, um, what happened to the posts after they were closed, right. and uh, then posts were restored. It's quite a big colour sort of coffee table style. That's that's the best way to describe it. It is a coffee table yeah. book, um, and I'm uh, I I wrote the chapter or helped write the chapter in Northern Ireland in it, um, so I'm, I'm quite proud of it because it's uh, with with those two books you pretty much have you know everything you need. Oh great! Well, I might be popping over to get an autographed uh, copy then. Oh, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. <laughs> I'm not sure my wife would uh, want that on our coffee table. That's the only thing. <laughs> we mentioned threads before, which um, for anybody who hasn't seen it is um, a UK drama film that was made representing a, a nuclear attack on Britain in the 1980s. Yes. Um, it's quite similar to, I think it's the day after was an American Yes, it's pretty much yeah, pretty much the same. So it's it's pretty similar to that. But are there any other film or TV series, particularly relating to the Royal Observer Corps? Um, is is there anything out there? I know I've seen stuff on 
YouTube, uh, which is great. And I'll be putting some links up to those because there's some really good representations and some sort of so, sort of like recruiting films on there, aren't there? Yeah. If anybody sort of remembers the sort of really old style uh, pre-cinema, if somebody ever went to the cinema and you had the little small sort of documentary almost style film that was shown before your main feature. They're very, very similar to that. Um, just a recruit. It's like recruiting film filmed in the sort of the guise of a, of a little, uh, of a little very short dramatization. Uh, some of them are superb. There's, there's a really, really old one. Uh, and it's called sound and alarm. Um, the Royal Observer Corps motto was forewarned is forearmed. Uh, the United Kingdom Warning, Warning and Monitoring Organization, or UKWMO, which were in charge, they were the sort of the government warning team who were in charge of the Royal Observer Corps. Their motto was sound and alarm, and it was two trumpets. Uh, that was their, that was their, uh, their crest. Mm-hmm. And they, there was a film, I think it came out in the late 60s, early 70s, called Sound and Alarm. And uh, they had the sort of the group control uh, aspect uh, they had the this local local government level bunker aspect and then they had the warning posts the monitoring post and uh, they had a doctor somebody had broken their arms so the doctor had to go out to the, the control and uh, the bomb had was just about to go off so the doctor got locked in the control oh, uh, I've seen that one that, that it's, is good that is it's just it's so basic and it just shows everything working so smoothly and everybody is so calm and this you know this stiff upper lip um well oh a bomb has just come off we'll just go out for a quick cigarette you know just yeah. so everything was just so by the book and uh, what happens is in the monitoring post it's beside the sea and they have a bomb go off above the sea which causes a sort of mini tidal wave mm. so the, the tidal wave comes in and floods part of the post and uh and then the, the blast wave pulls down the, the telecom wires. So one of the observers just gets his little toolkit and just climbs up the ladder and he just walks down the road and fixes the telecommunications cable. Yeah. You know, just like that. And five minutes later, yeah, five minutes later, he's back at the post and everything's fine again. You know, and just stuff like that was just, you're watching it now going, how, they just did not know. They just, either they did know and they weren't telling anybody or they didn't know. They were just completely clueless about it. And they just thought that if a nuclear attack happened on, on the UK, it would be four or five bombs, and then we would just go back to work again the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, words. Uh, I'm at a loss for words. Yeah, but it's, it's madness when you watch it. I mean, I would, I would advise anybody who, when they see the link, do click on it and do watch it because they are, you know, you'll be dumbfounded by just the you know, how basic they thought everything was going to be. But all of those YouTube documentaries and little film clips, the Royal Observer Corps has actually never been in a, a feature film or a, or, a, or a main or, you know, a mainstream television program ever, which which I, I find incredible, actually. That's a, that's a travesty, Alistair, I think. that's. A, I mean, they, well, the only time you see them is in films like The Battle of Britain, in World War II films, where they're there with their thermos and a sandbagged emplacement and their binoculars um observing the luftwaffe coming in there's a little gap in the market there for somebody to do like a not so much like a soldier soldier if you remember soldier soldier from the from yeah. the 90s um you know a little dramatization about you know just life in this yeah this guy is a doctor or a, a builder and his, yeah. his full-time job but in his spare time he's in a nuclear bunker in the middle of a phase you know it's almost the perfect film because you've got basically three people 
there. Yes. You've got a yeah. great sort of dramatization. They're all in one room. I mean, you could almost do it as a stage play, to be honest. Yeah. But, uh, oh, very. It's, it, it does. It lends itself to it so well. And uh, uh, for the amount of documentaries, I have done three or four documentaries now um, with, with Discovery Channel and Irish Language and the BBC and different mm-hmm. things. And I always said to them, well, you know, why is there just no interest in it? I'm just saying we just we just have our budget for yeah. certain certain programs, and that, that's that's what we have to do. Yeah. Maybe it's just you, and me, Alistair. We'll be the only people listening to this podcast. People will come. People come to my open days, and I'm sure people get it with you as well. That they just the Cold War is so recent history. You know, even though it's 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 it, it did it, you know the Cold War did end you know really in in 1992 1993, but. You know, for, for certain people, the Cold War has just com- almost completely been forgotten about. And we're, we're, more and more of it is, go- is going, is being forgotten about every year that passes. And more of these bunkers, monitoring posts are being demolished. Uh, and we're going to turn around in 20 or 30 years' time and go, why did we not save any of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and me are working against the tide, Alistair. So, yeah. Yes, brick by brick. Brick Absolutely. by brick. <laughs> Absolutely. Are there any museums or locations that would be good to visit around the Royal Observer Corps. Obviously, there's uh, your bunker in Northern Ireland, which is uh, open on various bank holidays, I believe. Yes, well, I mean, personally, I open. I would open three or four times during the year, and then I would open for a big event, which is called the European Heritage, which is sort of like an open doors event where sites usually wouldn't be open; they open up. Um, so I open up for that, and that's usually fantastic. I would usually get three or four hundred people come to that, which for a wow. for a for, for a building which is about the same size as your ensuite bathroom uh, yeah, <laughs> can get a little bit crazy. crazy. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. So we have to run time tours on that. Uh, other than that, there's there's plenty of museums opened. Um, the RAF Museum have quite a good RAF display, or quite a good ROC display. So um, uh, Hendon, yeah, the RAF and Cosford, Hendon and Cosford have both have little ROC displays. Okay. Uh, we have a lot of local aviation museums, sort of aviation societies, have their own little aviation museum. Uh, would tend to have an ROC display that was set up by one of their members who just so happened to be in the Royal Observer Corps and kept a little bit of equipment back and then they set up their own display. Um, so there's quite a few of those dotted about the United Kingdom. Uh, probably the most well-known is the English Heritage-run uh, former Group Control 20 group in York. Um, that's Shelley House in Aiken in York, and that's a, a former Group Control uh, that all the monitoring posts would have been reporting back to that group control in that area in the York in the York group, um, and that's been completely restored to exactly as it would have been um, in about the 1980s period. Um, and it's it's a fascinating museum. You know, you're you are you are very much going you know completely back in time when you enter that. It's exactly as it would have been um, at the height of the Cold War, um, and then soon to be opening in Dundee. Um, by a couple of friends of mine. Um, again, it's another group control, but it's the added aspect that it's also a sector control. Um, so it was the uh, Caledonian um, Scottish sector control. So all of the group controls in Scotland would have been reporting back to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all, any nuclear attack on Scotland, all of the information from all the group controls would have been coming back to there. And uh, a group of a friend, a group of mine called they're called Twenty Eight Group Observed. 
um, and they are a charity. Um, it's, it's essentially three or four guys. Um, they have restored this entire sector control by themselves. Wow. Uh, and it is just, oh, it's, it's, it's a work of art because everything in it works. You know, it's like if you go into a museum as a telephone, generally if you pick up the old telephone, nothing happens. In, in uh, Dundee, um, if you pick up a telephone, you will get a dial tone. If you press the corresponding uh, telephone uh, extension code, that telephone, the other telephone will ring. Just everything works. And they, they have the generator working so they can power the whole, the whole bunker of a generator. They have the air filtration system running again. It is a, it's a labor of love. And that's the sort of museum that I love. I love a museum that you could go into and you can touch things and you can pick stuff up because that's how you learn about history by interacting, by interacting with it. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do my, my own post because you know, I want I want kids to be able to come to it and, you know, put on a gas mask. Well, that's where we had to end our chat with Alastair. There's a ton of extra information in the show notes, including videos, local museums you can visit, including Alastair's, of course, as well as other subjects, books and films we discussed. The show notes can be found at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 11. Don't forget, you can join our discussion group on Facebook. Just search Cold War Conversations. And we're also on Twitter, at Cold War Pod. If you like what you're hearing, please leave reviews on iTunes or with your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.